What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. William Shakespeare is the greatest writer in history, and Hamlet is his greatest work. It's a play about, or it can be, a play about adolescence, a play about identity, a play in which you encounter somebody whose main purpose seems to be to think and to try and talk about, what am I to do next? Where am I? What's, what's happening? Uh, what do you think I should do? My name is Professor Michael Dobson. I'm the director of the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is the only university research department entirely dedicated to Shakespeare, other playwrights from Shakespeare's time, Shakespeare's culture, Shakespeare's effects in the world, and it's the sort of academic collaborator and, and uh, think tank for the Royal Shakespeare Company. In Hamlet, Shakespeare gave us one of the first modern characters in literature. We are invited into the mind of Hamlet to see how he thinks and acts in the face of love, grief, and revenge. Its structure is rather simple. We meet a man who is told by his father's ghost that, he, that his father was murdered by his uncle. His uncle is unfortunately now king and has all the security apparatus of the state at his disposal. Um, his father's ghost thinks uh, that Hamlet should kill the king and uh, avenge him. Uh, it's a, not an easy situation. And what, the, what that situation does is produce a protagonist who knows more than the other people on stage. And he shares that knowledge with the audience. We have a tremendously intimate narrative relationship with Hamlet because you know, there's nothing hidden from us. The audience's consciousness and the protagonist's consciousness are pretty much aligned throughout the play. And underlying it all is our knowledge that this is a tragedy and it's not going to end well. And Hamlet is very, very conscious of the fact that he's mortal. It's one of the things he keeps coming back to. He knows he's going to die. Um, he's unlike lots of other characters in drama who are getting on with life and then something dreadful happens and it stops. Hamlet knows. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Michael Dobson to discuss William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Could you tell us the, the major milestones of Shakespeare's life? Um, he's born to a fairly upwardly mobile family in Stratford-Bon-Avon, which is an important market town in the Midlands on major transport routes and a, a town that's visited quite regularly by touring theatre companies. His father, as an alderman uh, and a bailiff, had the job of vetting theatre companies when they came through town when Shakespeare was young. So Shakespeare would have had privileged access to that. He went to the local grammar school, again, as a result of his father's um, civic privilege, uh, which meant he was taught um, Latin drama, uh, which was quite a big part of the humanist syllabus in those days. Uh, and he married a local girl, Anne Hathaway, 
Um, he has, they have um, a daughter. Shakespeare still seems to be based in Stratford, despite evidently having shown literary promise at school. Uh, then, he, then they have twins, and then Shakespeare disappears, and the next time you see him, he's in London. This period between 1585 and 1592 is sometimes called Shakespeare's lost years. We don't have a ton of information on what he was up to. Most of what we do know about this period of his life comes in the form of legend. One story suggests that he was lying low after illegally poaching deer on a local squire's estate. But it could have also been that he was just really busy with his new family and trying to establish himself as a writer. This makes a certain amount of sense if you're an aspiring writer, uh, if you want to get on with your career as a writer. Being in a house with very newborn twins, it's not ideal. Um, and I, I speak from personal experience. Uh, but in any case, Shakespeare next turns up, he's next mentioned as a, an actor who is also an aspiring and, and versatile playwright. He's, he's criticised in a pamphlet by um, attributed to Robert Greene, saying, you know, be, be careful of this upstart. Um, he thinks he's the only shake scene in the country. Uh, and uh, from then on, he's then writing pretty fast, uh, clearly acting, and we don't quite know which companies he's acting with, but we can tell some of the plays he'd acted in because he echoes them in such detail in his own. Uh, there's, a, there's an outbreak of plague which shuts the theatres in 1593. He is supported by an aristocrat, the Earl of Southampton, and is able to have a kind of writing grant, and he writes two non-dramatic non poems, Venus and Adonis and Lucrece. And Venus and Adonis is a huge hit. It's Shakespeare's biggest printed book in his own lifetime. Everybody loves it. It's sort of playful, compassionate, soft porn. Uh, most of it consists of a very eloquent goddess begging for sex uh, and not getting it. Just in every possible way that a good Elizabethan grammar school goddess would use rhetoric to beg for sex, uh, she begs for sex. It's an immensely charming uh, poem. The success of this poem helped Shakespeare establish his name as a talented up-and-coming writer in London. This put him in a good position once the theatres reopened after the plague. Shakespeare's in a position to be taken on by the Lord Chamberlain's men, who are, who are a big company, um, as a shareholder um, and as their lead scriptwriter. He could have just stayed as a poet, um, or he could have gone back just to writing plays. But if, in fact, he goes back and he does both at once. He writes highly poetic plays uh, for a team of actors who will now um, put on his scripts reliably. Uh, as, as he wants them. Uh, and that's, that's the career position that he then holds and maintains. He invests more and more money back in Stratford. When he signs legal documents in London, he always describes himself as William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon in the county of Warwick. Uh, he's, he commutes back to his family periodically, but he's a conspicuous literary and theatrical celebrity. Um, and that company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, just after Hamlet's written and is such a huge success when King James I does inherit the throne uh, from Scotland, Shakespeare's company become the King's Men. They become the official providers of entertainment at holiday times uh, for the monarchy, uh, as well as continuing to own 
their own theatre, the Globe, on Bankside, and then their second posher theatre, the Blackfriars, on the other side of the Thames. So he's a very prosperous, um, major show business celebrity. He's one of the few people in that boom in Elizabethan uh, popular drama who actually money sticks to. Um, and and uh, in Shakespeare's case, he invests a lot of it in buying an enormous house in Stratford, new place, right in the middle of town uh, in 1596, uh, and then buying um, securities by buying shares in the tithes, which is a, a brilliant investment scheme where you kind of pretty much bought shares in the church. And um, his son dies, uh, but his daughters grow up. And when his daughters are around about the time his daughters are marrying, uh, Shakespeare seems to be spending a bit more time back in Stratford. In 1613, during a performance of Henry VIII, a prop cannon misfired and set the Globe Theatre on fire, burning it to the ground. By this point, Shakespeare had stopped writing and distanced himself from his theatre company and the theatre scene in London. After the Globe burns down, he's not involved in the rebuilding of the Globe, which the company does. He hands over as chief scriptwriter to John Fletcher, who was more or less his apprentice, and seems to be spending much more of his time back here in Stratford, where he dies duly in 1616, quite young, 52, and uh, is duly buried in the same church where he was baptised, the very grand and rather beautiful Holy Trinity Church in Stratford. Uh, and he's given a monument that compares him to Virgil uh, and to Nestor um, in, in Latin, and, and uh, a, funerary, a funerary bust which dresses him in a gown uh, to mark the fact that he was learned, literate, uh, that he's, uh, he's um, an intellectual. What was um, Shakespeare's kind of total body of work? How many plays and poetry did, did he publish? 18 of his plays came out in his lifetime, if you include some of the stuff he wrote collaboratively, like Edward III, he wrote a, quite a big chunk of. Um, there's 36 plays in the volume put out by Heming and Condor, um, his surviving friends, and Burbage was helping, but Burbage died uh, before the book came out. Um, and then there are, there's Pericles, which he co-wrote with Wilkins, which didn't get into that volume. So it's by Elizabethan standards, it's not that many. Um, you know, there's about 38, 39 plays, and then there's the volume of sonnets uh, and uh, Lucrece and Venus and Adonis, and a very cryptic and rather beautiful little poem called Phoenix, The Phoenix and Turtle, uh, which he writes for a, a, a rather courtly volume when the fashion for metaphysical poetry is just coming in uh, in the early 17th century. But he's busy. Yeah, he's busy. And, and you can see why he might want to take the last three years of his life off. So moving to the play, um, could you give us a plot summary um, of what happens in Hamlet? It's very important that Hamlet starts with some anxious sentries on a cold night. We gather they've seen a ghost. They have brought um, a student who's, who's, who they know called Horatio in case the ghost turns up again to prove to him that they've seen a ghost and so and, and because they think he might know what to do about it. The ghost indeed turns up um, and it looks exactly like the, de the late king, the recently died, dead uh, old King Hamlet, who, who you know, was a great warrior and who fought for territory against the Norwegians uh, led by old Fortinbras. 
And Horatia says, well, look, I'd better tell Prince Hamlet about this. You know, this, this, this is the ghost of his father. I mean, if the ghost is going to talk to anybody, it's, it's going to talk to him. Um, we cut to the court where Hamlet is in complete silence wearing black. He's the only figure in, in the court who is still in mourning. Hamlet's uncle, Claudius, is giving a speech to the court. He says that although the king's death is tragic, it's time to move on. He will assume the throne and marry Gertrude, his dead brother's widow and Prince Hamlet's mother. All our attention is focused on Hamlet because we know there's a ghost who wants to talk to him. Uh, and, and he's clearly not happy with the situation of his mother having just married his uncle. Uh, and you know, suddenly Hamlet is left on his own at the end of this scene. He's forbidden to go back to university. He's studying at Wittenberg in Germany. Um, Horatio comes, tells him about the ghost. And when Hamlet goes to, uh, to the platform with the sentries, he does indeed get spoken to by the ghost who tells him, you know, he was that uh, although the propaganda is saying he died spontaneously of natural causes, he was actually poisoned by his uncle while asleep after lunch in his orchard. Um, and he tells Hamlet, Look, leave your mother out of this, but avenge me. The next scene opens in the house of a man named Polonius, who is King Claudius's right-hand man. Polonius knows that Claudius killed the king, and he is helping to keep it a secret. But once Claudius starts to suspect Hamlet knows something, he and Polonius concoct a plan to find out for sure. They try to get Ophelia to sort of lie in wait for Hamlet while they spy on them and listen, listen to find out what Hamlet may or may not know, that he may or may not betray in his conversation with Ophelia. Um, Hamlet betrays nothing. He's just really horrible to Ophelia. Hamlet, meanwhile, spins up a plan of his own. He asks some actors to perform a play that Hamlet wrote based on what he thinks happened between his uncle and his father. They perform the play in front of Claudius, who gets very agitated and storms out. Hamlet is summoned to talk with his mother, who is not pleased with his behavior at all, as who would be. Um, on his way to see his mother, Hamlet finds uh, his uncle praying um, his uncle's praying for forgiveness and confesses to the audience that he did indeed kill old Hamlet. So you know, the, the ghost's word is confirmed for us. Um, and Hamlet creeps up behind him and is about to kill him, but then says, no, hang on, he's praying. If I kill him now, he'll go straight to heaven. Where's the fun in that? You know, that's not revenge. Um, well, I'll, I'll, do, I'll deal with him later. And, and so he leaves him and, 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 and Claudius then says, well, you know, I, I'm not succeeding in praying at all. You know, I, I, I do want to repent of the crime, but I'm not, I'm not confessing and I'm not giving back the crown or Gertrude the Queen. Hamlet is still intent on killing Claudius, so he tries again. But instead, he accidentally kills Polonius. When Claudius hears about Polonius's death, he realizes it's not safe to have Hamlet around. He decides that he's going to send Hamlet to England with a sealed letter uh, that's carried by Hamlet's old fellow students, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, which is going to tell the English authorities that on receipt of the letter, they're to kill Hamlet for him. Um, uh, and uh, Hamlet is duly packed off to England with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Meanwhile, Ophelia, learning that Hamlet has killed her father, goes out of her mind 
Um, and her brother Laertes arrives back from Paris wanting to avenge all this, to avenge his father, confronts the king. And the king says, look, it wasn't me, mate. It was Hamlet. So now Hamlet's trying to avenge his father. Laertes is trying to avenge his father. And Claudius is trying to kill Hamlet. But Claudius's plan was not successful. And Hamlet arrives back home, safe and sound. When he does, he finds an angry Laertes, a murderous Claudius, and his girlfriend, Ophelia, dead. The play finally resolves into its very messy final scene uh, when Claudius, the king, the wicked usurping king, says, look, Laertes, the way of sorting this out is challenge him to a fencing match. He's very vain about his fencing, and I know you're terrific at fencing and really like it. Um, and then we'll arrange that you'll have a proper sword, very pointy and sharp, and he'll only have a sporting one that's blunt, um, like they use in contests. So you can kill him that way. And, and Laertes says, look, even better. We'll do that. And also, I've got some great venom, and I'll dip my sword in the venom, and that way it'll be absolutely a dead cert, and we'll definitely kill him. Uh, so there's then this very exciting scene of this absolute grudge fencing match uh, in front of the whole court. Um, during which Hamlet realises what's going on, the swords get swapped around, um, both Laertes and Hamlet mortally wound each other. Hamlet, meanwhile, Claudius, just to make assurance double sure, has tried to give Hamlet a poisoned cup, um, and, his, and Gertrude, Hamlet's mother, has drunk the cup instead by mistake, so she's dying, uh, Laertes is dying, Hamlet's dying. Uh, Hamlet stabs uh, Claudius, the wicked usurping king, at long last. Uh, and then Hamlet has a last dialogue with Horatio while he himself is dying. And then Fortinbras, young Fortinbras, uh, the um, son of old Fortinbras, um, turns up with his army. Um, the whole Danish royal family is now totally annihilated, and it's going to be Norwegians taking over. Uh, and so Fortinbras says a few proper things about what a great prince he would have been, uh, secures the castle, and uh, tells the soldiers to fire a volley of shots uh, in salute uh, over, over the corpse of Hamlet. And that's the end. Go bid the soldiers shoot uh, is the last lines. Of all the plays to have become the number one play of all time, why this one? It seems to be more about rendering consciousness, rendering a, th a 3D sense of what, what it feels like to be an individual stuck in an unsatisfactory world. It's more interested in that than it is in its own plot. But of course, it has its cake and eats it, because it's also a great Scandi noir political thriller with a really good sword fight at the end um, and, and calls for a fabulous um, intellectual and athletic display from the performer uh, given the task of playing Hamlet. I mean, I know a number of very good actors who've played Hamlet. Um, I remember Sam West, who, whose Hamlet I saw many times because I, I loved it enormously. He says, well, Hamlet, you know, when I played Hamlet, it was a long Hamlet. It was four hours with two intervals. He says, so in the first interval, I'd eat a banana so that I would have the strength to get through the central part of the play where the big soliloquies are. In the second interval, I'd eat two bananas to get me through um, the gravedigger scene and the sword fight. So, yeah, Hamlet, the main thing about Hamlet 
it's a three banana play. <laughs> that was his that was his description. Is Hamlet the first modern work of literature? Does it represent a new consciousness that was emerging in Europe that made subjectivity different than what had come before? Hamlet has become associated with the story that everything changed at the Renaissance and suddenly we were all grown up individuals who knew that, that the old certainties were dead. But every single work of literature ever written has, has convinced its readers that, oh, here we are, modern people, the old certainties are dead. You know, I bet they were, they were saying that when they first heard the Iliad and, and probably Gilgamesh. Um, I, I, it, Hamlet has certainly become associated with the idea that, oh, yeah, this is, he's, he's modern, he's one of us. And we can, you know, dismiss everything, everything before that. But um, I, I'm, I'm a bit suspicious of it. Um, certainly, subsequent thinkers have used Hamlet that way. Freud being the most obvious, um, who says, "Well, look, here's, here's Hamlet to prove how different modern people are to the ancient Greeks." Because in ancient Greek times, if they were thinking about mother-son incest, they just wrote Oedipus Rex. Whereas you, know, you get to Shakespeare and it's all kind of camouflaged. You know, it's, that's clearly what's really going on. But you know, they, that's not what they talk about the whole time. It's not what the plot talks about the whole time. Um, it's a highly political play for, for different places. I mean, we, we're liable to forget that, I think, where, where we are. But it became a national allegory for, for Germany from the late 18th century onwards. You know, Freiligath has that famous poem, Deutschland ist Hamlet, you know, where, where Hamlet is this figure for this ineffectual nation that is failing to come into being and seize power and just not getting on with it. Um, and the Poles are the same. When, when Poland is officially wiped off the map in the 19th century, as far as they're concerned, oh, yeah, here's a young man alienated, angry with the government, keeps putting on clever plays that upset the authorities, ought to be the successor to the great royal kings of the past. Yeah, he's ours. He's our, he's our emblem. So it's been a very important play for political dissidents all over the place. There was an amazing production in Beijing in 1990, which didn't mention, of course, the events which didn't happen in Tiananmen Square in, in June the previous year, but which was clearly uh, resonating with them and full of you know, being this thing you couldn't quite say um, and, and you know, about this young student um, you know, up against a, an apparently impregnable system. The other problem with reading Hamlet is all about psychology rather than perhaps about consciousness or about uh, somebody who feels... Who, who communicates theatrically what it actually feels like to be alive and to be in trouble, is the fact that Hamlets are all different. Um, you know, you read a novel, you read the same novel, you've got the same evidence in front of you to deduce who you know, Pip is or who, whoever it may be. Hamlets change. Um, different productions do different scripts. They, they move speeches like Hamlet does. Um, and it'll fit an extraordinary range of actors. You know, as long as you can just about hold a sword, you can play Hamlet, um, as long as you're really good at, at relating to, to, to audiences. I mean, most people think of Hamlet as young and lean and elegant as, as the great young man's coming of age as an actor part. But I mean, 
Simon Russell Beale was a wonderful Hamlet, and he was sort of verging on middle-aged, and he's, well, to be candid, quite dumpy. He's not an athletic actor. He's a very strong actor uh, and a very musical actor, an incredibly eloquent actor, but you know, he's not Errol Flynn um, or the young Olivier who you know, does that huge jump in his film version in 1948 just to show that he can. Uh, it's um, Ben Kingsley was a sort of Beckettian Hamlet in big boots and a coat in his little studio production. It was wonderfully kind of absurdist. It's, it's, uh, it's a very pliable play because it's so weak, so it's kind of lucid, it seems. Um, you can give just the iconic moments and do what you like, or you can give just the iconic moments. I mean, it's a play that was so popular that when the theatres were closed down in the middle of the 17th century, there was a version done illicitly by actors at fairgrounds and surreptitiously in pubs just called The Grave Makers, which is just the grave digger scene. You know, we haven't got time to do the whole play before the police come, but here he is. Alas, poor Yorick, you know, and, and you just get that kind of edited emblematic highlight, sort of 15 minute good bit of Hamlet uh, as, as part of your evening's entertainment. How else would you characterize the influence of the play uh, across the artistic realms, but maybe even into culture and politics and kind of ordinary life? Where do we see Hamlet? It's a play that offers the temptation of solipsism. It's a play that comes to people's minds when they are unburdening themselves and when they're writing a, a literary text that is all about somebody who feels they're special where you're trying to get into their minds. Um, Tristram Shandy, which is you know, the, the mad autobiography uh, of um, somebody who's obsessed with his parents' sex life and various other things. Goethe's Sorrows of Young Werther, you know, this suicidal, fashionable, sensitive student who is, is so upset about Charlotte that, that eventually he wears a green waistcoat and shoots himself. I mean, admittedly, it's a green waistcoat rather than black, but that kind of romantic suicide cult, I'm, I'm so melancholy and sensitive, I'm too good for this world, I have a secret sorrow. Um, you know, those people are, are, are forever quoting Hamlet. The, the, the game continues. I mean, Ian McEwan has published Nutshell, which is uh, Hamlet all done as a soliloquy by Hamlet when he's still an embryo. It's, it's a very useful text for opening things up. Um, and um, if you decide that what matters you're not going to talk about social relations. I mean, Hamlet does, of course, but for writers who think that the important thing is consciousness on rendering how special somebody is as an individual, how special their perspective on the world is, regardless of how the world is organised or what their place in it materially happens to be, then Hamlet is one way in. You, know, you, you, you produce a, a, a middle-class Hamlet or a, you know, a, some kind of local Hamlet. It's a play that falls open for you quite readily. Hamlet is a play that gets to the heart of what motivates all of us to act. Love, betrayal, grief, and family. Shakespeare places us inside the mind of Hamlet to see how he personally wrestles with these forces. It is a work of deep psychological complexity and has inspired many writers to explore and reveal the inner lives of their characters. Part of what keeps Hamlet alive is its delicate balance of textured specificity 
and capacious vagueness. It is specific enough for Hamlet to feel real, while also inviting endless interpretations. Hamlet showed that the theatre can let you feel what it's like to be alive as someone else in the presence of death and melodrama and terror. Uh, It's a play about emotional instability that suddenly opened up whole worlds of inner experience for collective discussion uh, by whole audiences at a time and whole cultures at a time. Uh, It starts with a ghost, it becomes a ghost. We're all haunted by Hamlet, whether we've read it or seen it or or acted it or not. Uh, It's not going to go away. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Dew. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.